Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that gives you an up-close and personal look at the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Farresso, and with me, as always, are Jack Clavy and Pablo Torres. On our podcast today, we're going to chat with Win Schwartau, a, a security, privacy, info war, and cyber terrorism expert. Win's career spans decades and began when his dad taught him to repair televisions at the age of six. From there, he dabbled in rock and roll until he jumped headfirst into cybersecurity which was a pretty lonely world in 1983. Since then, he's written several books, including his most recent, Analog Network Security, Time, Broken Stuff, Engineering, Systems, My Audio Career, and Other Musings on Six Decades of Thinking About It All. And speaking of guys who think about things, hello to my co-hosts, Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. Gentlemen, good day. Good day, Ernie. Good day, Ernie. Pablo, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How you doing, Jack? Doing very well. Doing very well. You know, it's just a, a typical day for me, just reading the Harvard Business Review, as usual. Um, you know, just as usual. I think I'm, I, I'm a uh, well-established reader of Yahoo News. So every once in a while... Yeah, we... <laughs> you got to get it once in a while, it up I go, to the I, higher I, level. I, to, I put the, the Budweiser down and I, and I see what the, uh, the IPAs taste like, so... So, <laughs> it's not a slam on the Budweiser community, by the no. way. America's beer. I know of no beer <laughs> made in Belgium. More expensive to produce and make. Correct. Yes, it's exactly. <laughs> so you've got so there's a good article out there. Just the end of August that hit um, called "Your Employees Are Your Best Defense Against Cyber Attacks," and it's written by Fabian Muley, Jennifer Jordan, and Robert Cialdini, based on some real research here, and it comes to some of the same conclusions that. You know, we hear a lot, like I think this is quite similar to what the uh, White House put out maybe six weeks ago about ransomware preparedness, but it's backed by actual data and social science research, which is pretty cool. Uh, but it's worth, it's worth checking out, uh, particularly if you're trying to convince someone in your organization to take it more seriously on the cyber side. Uh, they propose a couple of things that from the legal liability standpoint may not always be the best, but are pretty good in terms of keeping your organization safe. Like the first one is ask employees to sign a security policy, which is a great idea from a legal perspective. If then there's training on it and they follow it, it, it could be a bad thing if you have everyone sign a security policy that is a fantasy of what actually happens at the company. So you're probably better off in that case, not having anything. Yeah. And I think that's where I, you know, you mentioned the, the policy. I, I think that's to have them sign it, but how many are, uh, how many companies do the sign the policy as a, as a CYA mechanism? Look, we made them sign a policy uh, as opposed to actually uh, – I, I think that, that feeds into one of their other ones is that, you know, you can have – it's, you know, it's the, uh, you know, leadership leading, leading from example, leadership from the top is that, you know, it's, we, it's more than just, well, look, we had them sign the policy. So, we, you know, go ahead and, go ahead and fry them. We're, we're safe. Um, <laughs> more so than actually we actually believe what's in the policy we actually live what's in the policy. Here are 42 um, policies. Click this single button to agree to all of them. It's exactly right. Yes. How many people yeah. actually read through those policies? Ernie, Ernie, like you said, with uh, point number five in, in this uh, Harvard Business Review, uh, be like those you lead. And, and that's important. Um, 
ultimately the culture does roll top down. And, and what I have to say about that is that if you can make cybersecurity something where you can positively associate it with neural correlations that create an increased retention of data that is gonna go ahead and assimilate an entire team to take proactive measures to be good with cybersecurity and in a very private fashion, I think you definitely have a good candidate uh, for, for a successful team to, to keep information secure. Uh, Jack, you, I mean, you deal with companies a lot, uh, probably more so than, than, than the average bear, of just a variety of them. And how many times do you got to, you do, uh, I don't want to call them repeat offenders, you know, but, but where it is, it's, it's, you know, it comes in and it's like, dude, we, we, didn't we come in here and help you fix this a couple yeah. months ago and you're still doing the same yeah. thing? Because the leadership is just wasn't, you know, they're just not taking it. I'm yeah. just not taking it to heart. I mean, do you, do you, you see do. that? It, it, it's unfortunate. And, and, and sometimes you see it within the course of a single incident. If you're responding to an incident and you're helping a company, the first 48 hours to a week, you have everyone's attention. Everyone wants to prioritize it. Everyone's solving it. You get it triaged to the point where now we're in maintenance mode of the crisis and everyone moves on. And you're like, we got this thing leveled so we could fix it. And you got to get everyone's attention again at that one week mark because they're starting to fatigue. And so imagine then you have an incident, you resolve it, everyone's fatigued and moves on to their day job, but no one ever goes back and, and deals with it. The, the, frankly, the best in my, you know, it's not social science research-based, but anecdotally, the way to combat that is to have regular check-in meetings, one. And then two, after every cybersecurity incident that required the, the pulling together of the full team to have a post-mortem, to have a conversation about, okay, this is over now. I know we all don't want to see each other again and we all smell bad, but let's sit down together. <laughs> One thing, by the way, that virtual meetings have solved. They've solved that problem. So and who gets the first Mountain Dew? But you've, when you're sitting together in a room at the end of it and, and you all know, okay, this is the last meeting this team's going to have before we go our separate ways on this crisis, you do have action items that are then developed that are tracked throughout the incident and assigned out. And so there is a little bit of that, that postmortem. And a lot of times who sets that postmortem, as strange as it seems, is the insurance broker, because they're the person who's got to go figure out how to get cyber insurance back for this company that had the incident. And so they'll say, let's sit down and have a lessons learned. I can then share that result with the carrier and see if it impacts, um, you know, if, if it impacts what happens. The harder part is, you know, Pablo, you, you're in the trenches with this. Like if you see multiple low-level events and, and still having – you know, how do you stay vigilant for multiple low-level events as opposed to, like, the occasional spike every 18 months at a big company, right? That's oh, hard. Oh, Jack. Um, I have stories from the trenches. <laughs> I have story from the trenches. Um, I mean, b before I get into the one that is going to directly address that, that question about low-level alerts, I mean, I just want to put this on the record for emphasis. Cybersecurity is, is, is dangerous. Um, we, we live in a dangerous world. When I was flying back into the country on Saturday, September 11th, 20-year um, anniversary, it's a very, very sentimental date to our country. I happened to jump back on the network Monday, uh, got through all my meetings, and then something just something came over me. I was like, let me check the firewall. Let's find out what's happening on the network. I, I date back to September 11th, and then I look, and I see that the web application firewall was targeted 311 million different times by Ooh. no other than the Chinese region. Um, of those 311 million attempts of all types of different flavors and variations of attacks, 330 
roughly 332,000 events were reflected in command and control attempts to execute some sort of malicious malware via some sort of method. I mean, the, it varies. I mean, we have the full spectrum of attempts. Yeah. Um, on this day, specifically, compared to the entire week, I mean, that right there, it hurts, and they're trying to punch us where it hurts. Um, but, but then again, let, let's go back to the original question with the low-level events. I mean, I've, I've come across individuals within the ecosystem without getting into too specific of, of information about the data. Um, individuals who are finding these, oh my goodness, these, these brilliant ways is what I'll say, to evade all data loss prevention tools that are in line within the proxy or in line within the ecosystem when it comes to the exchange servers. And, and they're, they're doing something as simple as taking snippets and screenshots of sensitive information and sending yeah. it to destinations that we probably wouldn't pick up on if it wasn't for us measuring the baseline score. What's the yeah. frequency of these individuals doing these, these type of communications? It's scary. We, we live in a really, really scary world. Man, it's like just a, a you know, somebody, a home burglar just testing your window, you know, Leave, leaving a thumbprint on it and coming back another time sometimes too. I think these six, so for this, for the Harvard Business Review article, I think these six suggestions are probably more powerful as analytical tools you know like probably better to say okay go through them and say is my organization doing this than necessarily saying we have to do these things yeah because it can probably give you a i've talked before about it i'll I'll, i mentioned again because i think it's powerful is the idea that if i go into an organization depending on who i'm meeting with and then i walk around a little bit if i'm with somebody who's c-level uh and i'm you know i'm the attorney and so i'm some stranger walking around the building and people are going to say hi to the CEO or to the general counsel, or if I'm with somebody on the incident response team, depending on who I'm with, I can learn. If they make eye contact, if the CEO will return the eye contact, I think that is a good sign, right? So if somebody who's just a regular employee walks by the sort of general counsel who I'm walking down the hallway with and they say hello to each other or at least know who one another are, that to me is a good sign that that's a, that's a tougher fishing target for a company to take down. Mm. Because, you know, if... A fake email comes from that CEO or that general counsel to that employee who might be in finance and say, hey, I need this t- yesterday. I need this wire to go out to, you know, this bank in China. Send it immediately. Don't call me. I'm in a, in a spa. Right. Well, will that person say, whoa, that's Frank. I know Frank. I'm going to give him a call anyway. This is ridiculous. Or will that person say, I'm afraid of Frank. You know, he won't even say hi to me in the hallway. So the CEO eye contact test is, re- is reflected I think in number three on the list, illicit yeah. responsibility or reciprocity, illicit reciprocity. If you, you know, if, if you can say hello to somebody three or four up the chain to you and, and that person, you know, acknowledges you exist, that's a pretty good back of the envelope, I think, for how that company's doing. Yeah. I, and I, 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 I go back to like you know, the number five, be like those you lead um, and then leverage the value of authority. Um, I, I think as we look at it, you know, we're talking about a lot of these things now. Um, you know, I think it was Rachel uh, Toback who mentioned that, you know, the narrative of people are the weakest link, and actually we need to flip that script. And it's, the, you know, like, like this article says, it's, your, it's your, first, your first line of defense. It's your best line of defense. And, you know, leading from the, by example, meaning you're, you're taking that, you're taking the proactive steps. You know, you're involved in it. You're not the one... Um, you're not this. You know, everybody knows or has heard about the CEO that has to go in and all they do is I I need that oh new iPhone come out yesterday I I, <laughs> I need it you know or look there's this cool G Wiz whatever I I have to have it and then lo- and just integrate it into the system um, as opposed to you know 
you know, just, okay, hey, hey boss, can you pause for just a second and think about how this is going to integrate with our existing technology stack? What are the implications? And, and by doing that and actually demonstrating that you do that, that that's going to permeate through the, through the, through the whole, whole network. I think that's what, uh, uh, what was it, Charles Barkley. You go, you know, you go back and say, how, is, how does Fair Russell bring in Charles Barkley into the cyber thing, right? Well, remember back when he made some comment, uh, this was years and years ago, that he, wasn't a, he, he didn't think he was a role model. And he didn't think he, so it, it was back in those yes. days when he was like, I, yeah, I can yeah. act however the heck I want because I'm not a role model. Yeah. And I think he's come around afterwards because he started to realize that, you know, actually, um, because I am a person of prominence, I am having an impact, you know, I am a role model. And I think that's, that's an example of it, is that, you know, it, regardless of whether you like it or not, if you're in a position of uh, authority in any organization, people are going to look up to you and they're going to follow what you do. Um, and, and, and when it comes to science, it doesn't take, at least my opinion, it doesn't, it doesn't take much, right? It doesn't, yeah. you know... Um, and I think that's where also we can do some we can do some good work yeah, because sure. also you don't have to be uh, some of these things that are going you don't have to be a, a cyber guru. I mean, you know, to 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 do this right. I mean, you, know, you, you it, it's if you have a password, you okay? Yeah, I know I got a I I know it, hey hey folks, I know it's a pain, but you know, hey, I'm doing it. <laughs> you know, you don't see me you know griping and stuff. But how many how many times? I mean, that's I think that's that's probably not the norm. But I think we need to get there, right? I mean. Don't email stuff to your personal email address and then open it on your family iPad. Just don't do it. Yeah, it's, don't it's do it. One with I know it. it's harder. <laughs> yeah. Stop you know, doing it. It's exactly right. We don't <laughs> ask for much, right? Listen, you need to break. Step away from the. You need to step away from the office anyway. Work-life balance, right? Is that a, that's a thing still, isn't it? That that yeah, we'll have to check the files on that. I yeah. don't know. I hope so. It'd yeah. be good. I don't know. I I have to say, guys. Don't click on the link saying someone is bringing coffee and donuts to the break room when we're working from home. Come on, let's use common sense. It's, it's not hard to be good. <laughs> but, but they're bringing donuts. There's a 1% chance that I'm getting donuts if I click on this And link. it's exactly correct. Donuts? I, what if I don't? That's going to be haunting me all day. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Email. Be gone. Yes. So... Anyway, speaking of haunting, when we come back, we're going to have some haunting discussions with our guest, Wynn Schwartow, and he's going to take us on a journey from way back in the 1980s uh, up until today, so stick around. Have an idea for a guest or topic? Send an email to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. All right, welcome back. Our guest is Wynn Schwartow, a cybersecurity pioneer who's often referred to as the Civilian Architect of Information Warfare. The Ponemon Institute, where he is a fellow, describes Wynn as the go-to guy when people want straight shooting, no BS originality. Wynn, welcome to No Password Required. No Password Required. Thank God for that. I'm so sick of passwords. Yeah, well, you know, we're trying to move ahead to be, be ahead of the times. Um, I'd like to think we were, uh, you know, using biometrics and... Uh, multi-factor before that was even a thing when there was no password but uh oh uh, that brings back memories of some epic fails in the early days yeah so that i mean you talk about it in the you know, you've been a, you you've seen this field uh, the whole thing start from from the beginning matter of fact i think a lot of it is a is a product of your mind um <laughs> i i i don't know that would um 
I've been at it a long time. Yeah, I got involved in uh, 1983. So that was before that. I mean, there was some legitimate work, Rack F, IBM, some mainframe security, ACF2. There was some of that. Um, uh, let's see, the Athena project had just mm -hmm. gotten started at MIT. Uh, there was some early stuff that had been working uh, with the government, especially with uh, uh, before NSA, it was called the National Computer Security Center before the NSA had even admitted that they exist. And then NIST was involved, early rainbow stuff. Um, but yeah, I got involved really early, quite by accident. I mean, many computers in those days just didn't have passwords at all. You could just get a computer and it had no password on it and you would just begin using it. Yeah, and my modem, you know, the dial-up, 300 baud modem, there was no security in that. <laughs> yeah, th there was zero. It was completely different. The, the, the world, well, we didn't have what we have, a few million computers hanging around. Um, I did have to log in to the NSA. Well, we're going to use website uh, very <laughs> loosely. <laughs> their, their bulletin board messaging service, and uh, they had... Um, a password, and then you had the well, which was run out of San Francisco, which was complete anarchy. Complete, oh, it was awful. They, I called them up with a security problem, and they go, "We have no security. Get over it." What? So, when? What is your? So, how did you get into this stuff? How did you get into computers uh, at this time frame? What's your, tell us a little bit about the early days and, and how you found yourself in this spot. Well, in the audio industry things and video and TV, there were computers, and I'm using that term loosely. Uh, for video TV production, we used a PDP-8 made by DEC that sort of did what it was supposed to do. Uh, had no effect on audio because nobody in TV gave a shit about audio at all. <laughs> so it's just, you know, a single mono pass-through in those days. And then um, automation, the concept of automating mixes came up in the oh, you know late 70s and that's where i met my wife she was working at harrison systems and they built this automation system that was total crap never did work <laughs> cost too much money was epic fail but i met my wife and so i'd had exposure to computers and technology since i was a kid uh from school and just because they, they were cool and then uh when i left the record business in uh, August of 81, completely fried, burned out. That's it. You're seeing the shrapnel remnants of that human being right now. <laughs> we um, moved to San Diego and it was, okay, I'm going to take some time off. Um, that lasted six weeks. You only can sit on your ass doing nothing for so long when you're a hyper 29 year old. And it was, Computers, I think that's going to be a cool area. Went to the classified ads, if anybody remembers. That's awesome. And, oh, wait a minute, computer job. Sure. I didn't want the job. I had never been on a job interview in my life because in the music business, everybody knows everybody. Okay. And either they like you, they don't like you, you have this skill, that skill, or what have you. Sort of like in security now today. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to go to this interview just for the experience of having it was yeah. an interview like. And so I wore the top half of my wedding suit and uh, some cut off jeans and flip flops or something. I really didn't give a shit. That's awesome. And they hired me. And I said, wait a minute, you don't get it. I don't I... want this job. 
What did I say so I could not say yeah. that the next time I'm doing this? Oh, you're exactly what we want, but I don't want this job. This was just an experiment for me. And then I ended up running the company and got heavily involved in computers and uh, computer for all, all the stuff that was happening back in the early 80s. And then um, a buddy of mine, uh, Western Digital, probably, you probably know the name pretty yeah. well. Um, back in, this was late 82, 83. Uh, he said, hey, I'm, he was a, the Western Digital rep. Huh. He said, hey, they got this project. You want to consult on it? And I go, yeah. He says, you're not going to ask what it is? No, I don't care. It's money, right? <laughs> then we'll figure it out. And it was an early data encryption standard hardware implementation wow. for an ISIS circuit. Wow. And that got me hooked. It sucked. The product was absolutely awful. <laughs> and, and I saw uh, an opportunity. Oh, we could design. Nah. And uh, they said, no, we're just not going to do it. I was like, yeah, but I am. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And so that was the transition. That's what got me hooked in 83. And then meeting Jim Bidsos uh, from uh, RSA mm. uh, in the early days when we were all playing the crypto games. So that's how I fell into it. <laughs> and those crypto games are different than the ones that are being played now in the markets. You're talking about cryptography and, and, and keeping bad guys out of places. Is that what we're talking yeah. about? It was uh, Diffie Hellman had just come out in 76 or 77. And everything prior to that was uh, symmetric key in you know, straight mm -hmm. ahead. Got to here and there. So Jim was uh, pushing RSA back in, I guess I met him in 82, I'm guessing. And we got into some early pissing matches over terminology. It was And I, we weren't really trying to be mean to each other. We got along. But I used some phrases with the stuff we were building that was the same phrase they were using that meant something else entirely. And he went off and made $900 million, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, Jack, that's in your field, right? Words have meaning. That's how it's. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But you got to do, well, yeah, it all depends on where you're earning the money. And, you know, oh, it was total you've chaos. Had a lot of adventures. <laughs> it was total chaos back. It was, it was so much fun. So yeah. much fun. Tell us a little bit about your, your current role, Wayne. What are you, what are you up to these days? Um, we uh, sold, uh, my wife and I sold our company to Nobafor five years ago. Oh, yeah. And we had one rule after the money and everything else was all worked out. I said, there's one deal breaker and it's up to you. And this was with Stu Showerman. And I said, you're buying us because we have a team that does something really, really well. Don't screw with it. Keep them as the team, as an independent unit. Do not try to build it into your higher, into your structure. You did this for a reason. Yeah. Don't fix it. <laughs> and um, that still SAC, security awareness company, is still the premier content developer, leading edge thinking and all of that for no before. That's so uh, it has worked out brilliantly for everybody because too many companies you've seen over the years, they get bought up and then they get shrapnel. Yep. People fly products and the vision got, went away. And we didn't allow that to happen. And Stu has been a tre tremendous partner. And then he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to think up stuff. I didn't use the word stuff. I use another word you have to believe. <laughs> Put an E on the podcast. <laughs> and so 
they gave me the title. It's pretty meaningless. It's chief visionary officer, which means come up with interesting stuff. Okay. And it has been great to not really be playing so much in security. Yeah, there's some pieces of it that definitely, yeah, there's some big security pieces. But it's not all security. It's also about uh, technologies and learning and how um, neural interfaces mm. are going to screw with AI and how is that going to affect. And so it's all these moving pieces of technology that are moving forward. And I look for integrations and um, non-obvious relationships between them that could be potentially applied. And I'm being obtuse because most of what I do for them is, um, until it's announced, is under you know secret lock and key. And I have to listen to the lawyers. I said, so my brain is intellectual property? Hmm. How do you control that? So that was a... So I, it's coming up with interesting technologies. And so I'm working in a lot of areas with immersive experiences. Uh, oh, some work cool. from the 1860s. Uh, there was some psychology work done in the 1860s and 1890s that we have largely ignored mm. in today's learning mechanisms. Uh, I learned a lot of it from a roller coaster designer in London. What? Yeah. Yeah. What about the experience of how people experience a ride versus it, how they experience something else? It's how they experience thrill. Oh, wow. And what it does to your endorphin system, how the detection reaction systems in our brains uh, react over what time period and what are the biochemical results of that that can enhance learning. Hmm. And I, I learned all that from a roller coaster designer so it's not it's not seven hours of zoom meetings back to back to back that's not the <laughs> that's not the optimal thing no, i seriously don't know how the hell people do that yeah i, I think we're going to look back on i mean you know we do the best we can with what we have with video conferencing but we're going to look back on it hopefully the way people whenever the next whatever your next thing comes out when hopefully we look back on it in the way that you know videographers look back on still photographs you know cool, cool um, and still useful but Come on. No, I think yeah. Zoom is great. I think it's a great tool. There's a couple of others that I've been using that are more, a little more creatively delivered to the user, but are not as technically ro as robust as yeah. Zoom. Mm. What really in March 2020, hopefully you all bought stock at 180. <laughs> but it was like, it was the only one that reliably worked yeah. out the gate. And then they, so when I say seven hours of Zoom meetings, it's not critical of Zoom. It's critical of meetings. Yes. Got it. In general. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I don't, I don't play very well with other people in those kind of corporate hierarchical decision matrices. Well, I think about video games, right? Kids can play video games now for, or adults can play them for hours at a time. And there is interactivity, but you're, you're an avatar that moves around a three-dimensional space, which is quite different from looking at each other's slightly moving faces. And the other thing there is that depending upon the psychoacoustics that you're using, they can also be completely uh, relational to your physical mm. location. You migrate oh. in, in game space, whatever the appropriate term is. A lot of effects. I went to a, a VR thing in Tokyo. <laughs> um, my son and I were there to go skiing. And I said, yeah, we've got to go to Tokyo and have some food. And I want to see some VR so I can write off some of the trip. <laughs> And so we found the most advanced publicly available VR thing. Okay. 
So we go in and get all strapped up with this and you get strapped up with this. And it's like an alien. It's like wearing 40 pounds of stuff. <laughs> and then there is a 15 minute introduction on how to use everything. In Japanese. <laughs> oh, good. Of course. My son goes first. My son goes first. Yes, right. <laughs> and Adam picked it up because he's used to the gaming thing. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so I'm not. I'm not a gamer at all. So we go into this room that was the holodeck with all, you know, the black room with the white lines ah, and all cool. that. Yeah. And so they spaced us out. And uh, I'm guessing it was two, 3,000 square feet. You know, pretty good size thing. And then I can tell the countdown and, and suddenly I am standing on a wobbly two by four on top of a support structure that is wobbling as aliens are running and the noise and, and completely yeah. took over my entire experience. <laughs> and it taught me so much about, and that tied into the roller coaster guy. Oh, wow. And so when you're accelerating these things with various types of haptic technologies, how can you achieve haptics without having to go full on physical? Because physical stuff isn't scalable. So I've yeah. been working in that area. If any of that makes any sense at all. No, it does. And I want to play a boxing game and I want to feel an impact, but I don't want to feel it the exact same way I would if I were punched in the face. Yeah, you don't want, you don't want the video game to bust your jaw. Right. Would be, yeah. You want to you want to set it on low pepper spice rate. <laughs> How did you so yeah. you know you have a, a public persona about information war, and you're you're an expert in that area. How did you you know transition from what you were doing to learning that a computer could be an offensive weapon for warfare? How does that happen, and how do you get into the the sort yeah. of info war space? All right. Um, so uh, I was working at this time. I, I was the lead architect, or for lack of any other term, on a project with Hughes Aircraft, um, ICL, which was the IBM in Europe. The security dynamics, which was the source of what RSA became, uh, the Athena project, Sun Microsystems. We had this consortium we put together that we had designed what was going to be the world's first uh, single sign-on system for global enterprise. So. Oh, wow. So this was like 88, I'm guessing. And so at that point, I was working with Q's and doing spending a lot of time in Washington. So I was back home and uh, taking a shower one morning or noon, whenever I wake up. And I love showers for me are thinking it's like peaceful and calm and all that. And so this virus goes and nails a computer in my mind okay and then another virus and suddenly five viruses come and nail and then this uh network of attacks coming with intention and control behind them what today we would call multi-vector well i don't remember what i called it back then okay i got a multi-vector and i do this in order to get him really down here so i need to create a disturbance so therefore then i can use another technology to come down and so it started multiplying in my mind and it added in passive surveillance active surveillance tempest busting emp satellites it was like this entire ecosystem of what networking has become 
And I realized, I said, shit, this is war. Then the water went cold. <laughs> so I, I remember I ran over to a desk because those things, you, know, you have a dream. I sat and I just started writing all this crap down. And then I drew some pictures. And that was the beginning vision uh, of information warfare. Wow. And so where do you think uh, from that uh, vision in the shower, uh, where is it now? I, mean, I don't know. It, are we close? Are we there? Or uh... I think it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, the, you'll hear this throughout history, if they had only listened. There were a bunch of us that had gotten a lot of discussions together, uh, which is what created InfoWarCon and this global community we had uh, put together. And we started for the first time getting uh, the military, the private sector and enterprise, law enforcement, first responders, and computer hackers all in the same room talking about the same thing under my insane tutelage i said this is what we're going to do because i don't know the answer i want to know the answer i came up with it so tell me how do what do we do and that was what we spent many many years doing but unfortunately the observations the insights the predictions of what we said is going to be happening, which is happening, even yeah. worse than we had imagined it. Nobody listened. It was uh, an inconvenient truth, if you mm. will. Uh, yeah. The generals wanted to do it, but the colonels didn't understand. And the lieutenant knew how to uh, swap a floppy out. And we were so far beyond that into this hyper-theoretical world of what can happen using at the time absolutely currently available technologies if you just put some intention and money behind it we chose not to do it we chose to spend 64 million dollars to attempt to come up with a definition of information warfare and they ended up using finally the one from the book <laughs> and then there is all these experts on information warfare that have, I mean, it is shrapneled into this uh money machine in dc yeah. like everything else does with the beltway yeah. bandits some of it is really good technology but what has been lost is vision yeah. there is no vision there is no leadership or i mean for, for the little world we lived in um, okay but maybe i was the leader of the inconvenient truths and okay let's think of it this way and not this way or let's think of it this way and put people together that have never met before to come up with novel approaches that whole thing went away that whole type of free thinking um went away by roughly 2003 maybe a little bit later and that's one one of the reasons i left the field after what 14 years it was like this bullshit. i mean I don't yeah. need, i'm not gonna and i'm not gonna go do meetings which is where you began those things <laughs> they always wanted to meet and i finally said no well why not because i quit i'm not doing it anymore you do a lot of direct talking to audiences. You do a lot of speaking. Is that still something that you do? I know you've done it over the years. Are you, are you still out there talking to large groups? Well, Define out there. Oh, yeah. Now, you've been to some, yeah. 
now, yeah, before this, I guess, before the last um, two years, you were out a lot. Do you think you um, hopefully can get back in person soon? I have not been in front of a live audience since RSA, uh, February 2020. Mm. And uh, oddly enough, I'm supposed to count up how many I've done in the last couple of years for this year for reporting purposes. Yeah. And it's like, I'm like, I've done 40 or 50. So yeah. I've done a lot. And it's, I'm not going to go to the old ways yeah. of pop into a city for an hour, pop into a city <laughs> for an hour. Bullshit. I'm going to Paris for six weeks and I will adjust my time zone, but I'm doing it from, <laughs> I'm doing it from here. And uh, I'm just, I'm going to go RSA. I'm going to go to some conferences, but by and large, they're SOS to me. Uh, I yeah. find very little value because they're still talking 1990s problems. 1990s 1970s style architectures and uh, modern theory is just starting to creep into some of it right now and that's where i prefer to help yeah that makes sense what what um we've you know we've heard at, at some of these talks where you say call me out on my bs yeah is that something people still do when you're doing it remotely and and, and how is that i encourage it i okay. encourage it every time because, well, number one, I don't know everything. I know yeah. a lot of shit, but I don't know everything. And then you may know something of the same thing, but you know today's information, and I'm quoting last week's information. Got it. And I may be bringing up something about uh, quantum mechanics that you, you you know more about it than I do. And you go, no, no, that's not right. It's the fermion doing the link over through <laughs> to the posteris on the turquoise. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Thanks for that. I'll buy you a drink later. There's value in that. Yeah me it's value for the audience and hopefully part of the value also is recognized that we're all in this together and you can't know everything we have to work as a team and you have to use the scientific method and be willing to get called out on your bs and modify your position and thinking with new data and we don't do enough of that especially security vendors We'll probably sponsor this, right? No, actually, we we are unsponsored. We are. Oh, we're we're a, we're funded by the by the government. We're we're. Uh, that's interesting. And so I wonder, uh, how much do you think people's ego has has slowed us down in this in this space? I mean, you mentioned oh, uh, you're talking with the, the 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 senior military folks, and you know they it was like, oh yeah, this will be great, but because we we're, we're a little bit better. Uh, than we were back then, uh, meaning now a lot of the generals like, yeah, let's do cyber, but it's still there's still the well, let's sprinkle a little bit of that cyber on it after the fact. Um, all the cybers, put all the cybers, give them the cybers. Yeah. Yes, I honestly don't know enough about today. I mean, I can, yeah, I mean, I understand the attacks and all of that. I get it. Um, Basically, anybody can do anything with enough money yeah. uh, or compromising the right people. It's it's the same old cloak and dagger stuff that we've seen for hundreds of years, just with a different approach. And yeah. we've got the technology and we have the human factor. And the human factor is uh, probably the most important uh, still, uh, as it was uh, when spies before uh, during Clinton era. They said, oh, the Cold War is over, so we, we can slow down the CIA. We don't need them anymore, and got rid of all the human intelligence, and that was recognized as 
that was a major snafu. Yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We like to call we that a bad lost, idea. <laughs> we lost easily 10 years of intelligence on the ground. And it's the same thing with security, whether you're doing in offense or defense, uh, the human element. It, it, this is ultimately about people and really screwed up technology that the planet has decided to run itself on. You know, you've spoken to a lot of governments and, and done a lot of travel in your time. You know, we have to ask you, which group did you upset more, the Polish government or the CIA? The CIA and I have had a number, we had a number of issues over the years. And as a non-spook, they were mysterious to me as to not the hows, but the whys. <laughs> and a couple of them I sort of understood. They wanted me to do some stuff that was just wrong. No, okay. just no. And I called them out on it. And so they put me on a shit list that made international travel hell. And that's a story that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Understood. How that got fixed is another. It's, that, that's not, that probably never will be codified on video. Understood. All right, we'll, try, we'll try one more. Did, <laughs> did a member of a, of a foreign government security team once threaten to shoot you if you came within 20 feet of a building? No, that was the Marines. Okay. It was the U.S. <laughs> Marines. What was that? What was that about? Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was, this was a, the first time is the one I really remember. I was in The, some, the first time? <laughs> oh, it seemed fairly normal. Um, first time I was in some spook building, and I'm guessing D.C., Maryland, Virginia. I don't remember. And I was... Don't remember why I was there, but I do remember I was in an office at a hallway and outside of it, there, there was a general, I don't know. And there were a couple of teenagers with M16s. And so I remember saying, I, okay, can I use the men's room? Yeah, sure, it's just down the hallway to your left. And so then this teenager is following me down and I kind of look, I say, you know, WTF mate. And he goes, sir. You are a security threat. We have orders to shoot you if you get within 20 feet of a computer. <laughs> that is awesome. And I said, can you come in the men's room and please help me? <laughs> and he didn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough. I guess people with M16s are said no sense of humor allowed. Yeah, well, it's when they cut your hair short like that. They cut something out. That's what happens. Yeah. And then it became fairly normal to go so I, I turned it into a game of how many security badges could i not turn in because <laughs> that really messes with them because they got to count them at the end of the day and if something's miscounted then they have to go through this formal review and part of it was just kind of hacking the system to see if they were any good or not and i've, I've still got stacks of these things <laughs> oh no i left it inside on the table right uh, yeah oh, you're good bam out <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great uh, learning about more about you here. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, but when we return, we'll have Ernie's lifestyle polygraph. So please stay with us. You are listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right. Welcome back. All right. Wynn, are you ready? For the life, no, no. Ah, no. Well, this is the best time to start. 
So this is the segment that we call the Lifestyle Polygraph. Um, For those of you in our listening audience who don't know, for certain positions of national security concern, uh, you have to pass something that is known as a Lifestyle Polygraph, where they ask probing questions to determine uh, if you're a security risk. Well, we have something similar here at at No Password Required called uh, the Lifestyle Polygraph, which is uh, neither a polygraph... um, it's sort of tied to your lifestyle, sort of. Um, and it's where we're going to ask you a series of questions. Uh, you know, they, they're going to be kind of rapid fire. Um, and it's just to kind of probe the inner workings of your mind. So are you ready to begin this? No. No? Well, we're going to start anyway. because no, he. Re- I, I, I wouldn't pass a polygraph now. I'm so nervous. Now, see, we don't. What the good news is there's no pass or fail. No pass or fail. Like, this, like they told you, no right answer. Just an answer. Yeah, no, it's embarrassed or not. I guess. <laughs> That's right. All right. So here we go. These are really good ones. All right. So question number one. Is Louis Armstrong the best teacher you've ever had? No. Uh, Louis Armstrong taught me one thing uh, when I was five or six, how to play when the Saints come marching in. The best teacher I ever had was Bob Goldman, from the age of 16 to just about 18. And he was the owner of a recording studio, took me under his wing and gave me a 20 year education in about 18 months. So along those lines, we're continuing on the moon. Here we go. Next one, Velvet Underground or Blue Oyster Cult? Not, neither one, a blue, I mean, blue Oyster Cult. The only thing about them is more cowbell. Yeah. That's about the thing I ever think of. <laughs> Velvet Underground, I was never a fan. <laughs> either that was that that was too off to the side for me that was too late 70s early 80s but no not for me <laughs> so we'll just go more cowbell more cowbell all right yeah and it's it's you know it's funny that that's what that's what brings it in right it's not their actual music it's the saturday night live skit that yeah. that and i think that's probably right that's made them that's the i want to say that was they that's like their only thing was uh was don't fear the reaper that that's like they're, they're they they could be classified as a one-hit wonder from i mean and that's about it i guess uh, yeah. they, they were they've never been on my radar during my career yeah no. yeah and you know hey gotta have that cowbell so a more important question is uh chicago style pizza actually pizza if not what is it i have nothing against chicago style pizza um, there's, there's a lot of Chicago style pizza that's very much like New York pizza. But now if you're talking about the deep dish square, that is a specific style that was sourced there, but they don't necessarily, they also do have double folded greasy pizza too. I'll go for the, because uh, the other one just gets a little bit more like lasagna. And as long as you've got sausage and pepperoni on it, I'm good. Yeah. So it's not the, yeah, you could go, it's just a different. Yeah, different. Yeah, but just no, no pineapple. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think that's, you know, I, I've had the same type of, you know, when does it become not right? You know, pineapple. What's the essence of because pineapple? That's just okay. One could say any fruit or vegetable. Well, do you count um, mushrooms as vegetable? What about peppers and onions? Can I know. Go? I don't know that. So, so where do you where do you make that? Where do yeah, you where's the line? Out? Yeah. It's totally arbitrary, and I'm right. Next. (laughs) Every New Yorker will say the same thing. I mean, I grew up next to pizza places, you know, and 
Yeah, so you go in with your 15 cents or 10 cents and get a slice. That's the 1920s for, for you guys. No, you could, you could get two slices and a Coke in Newark, New Jersey for like four bucks, you know, maybe 15 years ago. And now I think that same combination is nine bucks. It's like inflation is seen in the two slices in a soda more readily than anything else. Maybe buying a hot dog on the street is another place you can see it. Oh, that, yeah, well, that's still five bucks. New York or Chicago, either one. All right, here we go. Mm-hmm. Next one. You frequently end your tweets with, quote, uh, OHM. Why? I don't do OHM. It's OMM. OMM. Okay, so it's OM. Ah. And is that the, uh, so it's the, it's, it's, it's religious or spiritual. It, I got it right after the 2016 election. So I could have some occasional peace by just looking at my arm. Has it helped? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Cause it's been needless to say, uh, for a lot of reasons, it's been, uh, uh, fortune cookie, interesting times. Um, and I don't use the word interesting times. That's a Confucian curse. Yes. Yeah. And we're pretty darn close to that. Uh, so that's why I use um, and the um symbol and, uh, it feels good. Yeah. We could use some of that in, uh, uh, it, where we're at today. Uh, well, we, we need humanity back, and I want to hopefully help bring a little humanity back maybe into the security industry. And so I'm working on it. I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm working on a thing actually for, the, for, for prison reform. Oh, oh, wow. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's obvious. Quite clear that I'm doing well, there, it. Well, that's, yeah, I was going to say, that was, that was like right on my thing. I bet you he's doing stuff for prison reform. Is it data really? Is it like, because I know there's been a lot of talk about how much they charge for long distance phone calls over the years, and now they're charging no, per no, email. They, so no, 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 no. This is right now between the, I, the only numbers I'm using yeah. right now are the U.S. and U.K. because they're pretty easy. I'm not going to get yeah. a whole lot of numbers out of Zimbabwe, Rwanda, or yeah. Russia. So I'm going to use I'm using those two, and roughly 360 billion dollars a year of direct costs go into uh, the current law enforcement uh, uh, incarceration system. Mm. And then you start saying, or I start saying, yeah, but. 80%, 70%, whatever the number yeah. is, they're nonviolent guys and they're, do they belong in a professional school for felons to destroy their life, society's life, their family's life, and the sidereal yeah. cost to society? Yeah. So I designed this way an alternate means of um, incarceration that is completely virtual. And uh, with a lot of high-speed uh, detection mechanisms, which are available now that a lot of the work's coming out of NASA. So I read a lot of strange things. You could basically, um, and it sounds draconian, instead of those ankle bracelets that are, you know, weigh seven pounds yeah. and marginally work, and I, to this yeah. day, I don't know why there's a seven-pound bracelet for a GPS. Sorry, that's just yeah. me. And you need a landline to work a lot of them. Like some of those things are... Yeah, we can get yeah. streaming yeah. video from Mars, but you <laughs> yeah. still have to have this, you know. Only with, the, only with yeah. the slave colony. Only with the slave colony. That's right. There. That's right. And so I designed this thing. It's like, okay, let's say I'm making this up. And I'm not trying to push any one agenda. I'm pushing the technology. 
let's say uh, you were drunk driving. Okay, and part of the sentence now, we're not going to send you to jail, but you're going to do 2,000 hours of this. You can't drink. You can't go to a bar. So there's these, some of them are biocontainment, uh, you know, yeah. the, and some of them are behavioral modification. And the whole purpose of prison and getting caught and all that is theory. Let's rehabilitate. And I'm using these words very, very yeah. loosely get into a semantic debate so you're going to do 2,000 hours of this uh you're only allowed to drive to and from work and if we detect any alcohol in your system you're going straight to jail how do we do that it's intrusive yeah and i don't know yeah <laughs> so is so is going to prison <laughs> so all right do you do it with um the patches okay there are skin patches that, that can detect an amazing amount of chemical arrays you do that or do you do a subcutaneous thing? Well, that's intrusive. Well, go to jail. <laughs> um, well, you're monitoring. What about my privacy? Go to jail. Yeah. And I've been working on this, and I'm working with uh, the Royal Society in uh, where I hope to introduce it in London mm -hmm. uh, in uh, early next year. Now, that's really interesting stuff because I and I think that's. You know, when you talk about prison reform, you mentioned it briefly. It's the if the if the assuming the intention is uh, rehabilitation, then why wouldn't you do it this way as opposed to, you know, like you said, drop somebody, drop somebody who's a nonviolent, uh, you know, second offender for something that's not necessarily a, a horrible heinous crime, and they're in general population, uh, you know, with the uh, with with the murderers and such. That doesn't help their odds of rehabilitation at all. In fact, it probably sends them down a bad path to begin at the wrong. And that's why I'm, one of the reasons I'm working, I'm working with, I'm, I'm trying to get this done out of the Royal Society over there is because England is really small and has a substantially less provincial world worldview than we do in the U.S., especially in 28 states or whatever the god-awful number is that just do god-awful things. Okay, and our last question here in the polygraph. Oh, sorry, I didn't we're, mean to take No, no, we're not no, done. That's the whole point of it. That's the whole point of it is, is to, yeah, is to go, who knows where it goes. That's, uh, um, but here it is. Okay, what is a positive trait that you currently have that was most shaped by your parents? How to research. My mother always said the most important thing you can ever do is learn how to learn. And I guess I was six years old when that began. And uh, she bought me the Encyclopedia Britannica, all 26 volumes and four point font. <laughs> and I'd ask her a question, go, look it up. <laughs> well, we're off to the library. So we had the sidewalks the trench from our house to the library <laughs> box away. And uh, we were there many, many times. And growing up in New York gives you the opportunity also, you get the, well, you could go around the city on your own at 10 years old back in those days. And if you were, you know, a little bit aware of what was going on and you had the New York public library at 42nd street and the two lions there, patience and fortitude which was always part of my mother's as well. And then my father uh, was hardcore engineering. He says, you're going to be an electrical engineer by the time you're 11 if it kills you. And you mentioned the, you know, the library and, and uh, you know, learn to learn. How do you think, you know, today, you know, I'll, I'll use it, the, the Internet and, uh, um, you know, with so much information at people's 
fingertips, you know, learning to learn. What's the, what's like learning to learn 2.0 look like when it comes to that? Because, you know, because it's like, say, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true, right? Um, and so now people um, can, you know, they learn to use Google, but does that learning to learn or is that learning to learn the wrong stuff? I, I'm going to stick with learning to learn 1.0 is still make sure your source materials yeah. are reliable. I mean, that's fun. I don't need the internet to find that fallacy that's existed forever. Yeah. You know, get and be willing to be wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. You know, we don't teach failure enough. Jesus, I don't get it. You don't learn unless you fail. So some guy comes to a job as a network administrator for you. And he wants to be your guru of techie cybers. <laughs> and his resume is great. Nothing has ever gone wrong anywhere he's worked. Do you hire him? In the modern world, the, 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 uh, the answer is probably yes, but the wrong answer is yes. <laughs> At least you want to find out how you got to those, you know, how did you get to those successes, right? Because if you do, if, if everything wins all the time, yeah. Pleasure, pain, dark, light, the Taoist philosophies really do manifest themselves everywhere. Yeah. So I got to tell you, when this has been really fascinating, interesting, exciting, fun, you name it. We've, uh, we've traveled a lot of places here uh, this afternoon. And I want to thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Um, no yeah. problem. Anytime. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed especially the interaction I've had with Ted. It's been amazing. Yeah. Well, he tell you what, Ted is the that's all he's got to do. He just sits there and he looks. That's what he does. And he's the calming presence for our entire. He, he keeps us grounded. Keeps us. And grounded. he's the bass player. He is the bass player, which is the heart of the whole thing, right? Laying down that bass line. So, when is, how would people uh, get a hold of you if they wanted to, you know, track you, follow you? Not necessarily track you in that sense, but uh, you know. What I'm talking about. Oh God. <laughs> um, my website is in mediocre states of horrific transformation <laughs> and I, i've been that's kind of like me i'm usually in that every morning like, so yeah winschwartow.com has got stuff um all of my books are now basically for free on amazon unlimited then uh winschwartow at gmail.com keep those letters and cards checks coming. Yeah, cards and letters coming <laughs> no checks i want the checks the checks okay <laughs> Yeah, put a check in that email, would you please? That's right. <laughs> We're working on that technology, too. That's right. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, Pablo Torres is going to bring one of, one of the greats into our organization, Snoop Dogg, into our growing cybersecurity firm. Where will Pablo place this multi-talented media icon? Stick around and find out. There's a place for everyone in the world of cybersecurity and Pablo Torres plans to prove it. Welcome to Positively Cyber. Welcome to Positively Cyber. I'm your host, Pablo Torres. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the intricacies behind the proverbial magic touch in the arena of cybersecurity. What is the magic touch, you may ask? Well, loosely speaking, it is a skill 
of which an individual possesses the knowledge to live the life of a cybersecurity professional that transcends the many layers of separation keeping the clear web, the skiddies, the devs, and the hyper-intelligent bots separated for very good reason. In a world where saying less is more, we need to find the right fit to provide our team steadfast stewardship when proactively seeking data to stay abreast of the most emerging nefarious trends on the darknet. We need a darknet intelligence analyst. For a moment, let us keep in mind, humans have evolved over the last 50 to 60,000 years. Humans have always been targeted, of course, all relative depending on the various circumstances. Nevertheless, we understand safety. What we do not understand is security. Security is not part of our language, and immersing ourselves into this mindset to form a culture around privacy is no easy feat. Notwithstanding, it is a challenge we must execute on. It is a challenge that our team happily accepts. When hiring someone to conduct darknet research, you need to have someone reliable, someone with a skill set so vast that they can instantly find common ground with any nefarious actor they encounter along the path. On any given day, the dark net is easily frequented by over 1 million individuals all surfing the network, through which they are procuring, encrypting, and transmitting data to numerous virtual private servers. These personalities can all uniquely deviate in their respective intent, and this can be displayed via the numerous variations of black hats, gray hats, purple hats, and possibly a dozen other types of cyberneer do-wells wearing hats on the frontiers of the deep web that we have yet to discover whom, quite frankly, can offer more good to our society and our infrastructure than harm when allowed the opportunity to do so. Discovering this type of talent early on is what keeps frustrated hackers from exploring the possibilities of what can be done behind the keyboard, from maturing into a full-fledged state-sponsored contributor for hire that specializes in the business of illicit data pilfering and retrieval. Let's be honest. Attempting to gather information from savvy cyber criminals is a delicate process. One single word can be the difference between retrieving data that is essential as a vital piece of intelligence, or conversely, having your cover blown. Navigating the realm of spam bots, DDoS services, node transfers, and nefarious developer groups is not a simple walk in the park. We need the right fit. We need someone that we can trust. Our fictitious cyber security firm starts every investigation with a question similar to how our friend Charity Wright starts in her investigations. Once we get our heads wrapped around the initial query, we later then allow our curiosity to take control and drive the examination as far as we can pull on the string into the abyss we call a rabbit hole. With all of Hollywood to choose from, who is the perfect persona positioned for this role? From the man who coined, hip hop is what makes the world go round, we are injecting Snoop D-O-double-G into the mix. Because today, we have come to understand that technology makes the world go round. He said it best, it is easy for a kid to join a gang and do drugs. We should make it easy for them to be involved in football and academics. Sure thing, Snoop, we agree. We are not advocates for the former. However, we are certainly a proponent of the latter. And the latter consists of proactive action through involvement and opportunity to expand one's knowledge and become a more productive member of any team. And if we have it our way, we would love for them to be part of our information security team. Snoop, let's get to brass tacks. We need you to research, we need you to monitor, and we need you to analyze intelligence and data and make the best recommendations on that data. We need you to provide analysis for our national security infrastructure, its technology, and its specific geographic targeted vulnerabilities that could be susceptible to being compromised. We need you to prepare assessments of our current threats and trends based on sophisticated data retrieval and analysis of classified and open source information. 
Most importantly, we need you to follow and log any links you come across and treat all links that lead to CP as a dead end. Like it never even existed. Screenshot everything and make sure you have evidence for your peers. Following the 80-20 law of nature, 20% of the world's information affects 80% of our lives. Most of the deep web is underground cultures, lost worlds and stories and logs of horrible events in the most sin-ridden parts of our human nature. We need someone to parse through the noise and to find the viable data that will be baked into our model and detect and mitigate risk to help us ensure that we are maintaining confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Time to get to work, Snoop. Welcome to the team, and we know that you're the right fit for the role. We're down to get down, and if this is anything like any project that you've ever worked in the past, the information security business, we do not need to recreate the wheel. What we need to do is make the wheel more dynamically versatile. I like this for a lot of reasons. I like he's got, he knows the way everyone else thinks. He can get along well in almost any company. I mean, he, he's a guy going to the White House and can, can still talk to people um, on the street and in prisons. So he's got a great range. Um, he's got an exceptional work ethic, always hustling, always working, and he's always been the case. Um, the hard part, I think, with this is that he'll have to spend time alone you know, like there's a lot of time you're just one-on-one -on -one with that computer screen here. Even though you're interacting with people, I think a lot of the, the surveillance he'll have to do and, and the connections he'll make online are, are sort of solitary. So we'll have to feel him out on how he feels about that. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the one downside because you got to spend a lot of alone time in the chair. Yeah. But uh, yeah. he spends a lot of time in the recording studio. It could be similar. It, it could be similar. And then we also have to factor in the intangibles. What, what is it about his mindset that allows him to do what he does well? And I, I think that's what allows him to contribute to the team. It, it presents an opportunity for him to provide a perspective that's not common to what our team already possesses. And uh, aside from, from the interconnectivity that the internet offers, I mean, the, the, the emotional intelligence aspect is still the same. We have humans behind the keyboards, and those keyboards are being click-clacked by individuals who have emotions. It's when we get into quantum computing and we allow Snoop to interact with something that doesn't have any sort of of, <laughs> of any free will, it's just processing data at will. Um, I guess you could say that's free will, but I mean, we're talking about binary, we're talking about something that processes data ones and zeros and calculates them as two. It's like taking black and white and calling it gray. It's like the um, Snoop Dogg, the Snoop Dogg Turing test. Yeah, put yeah. Snoop Dogg against, up against. I, I, I do believe, I do believe Snoop will definitely add to, to our team, and especially with the dynamic, and I, I feel like street smarts is very important when you're dealing with an army, let's say, quite frankly, of nefarious actors who are looking to commit harm. What is, uh, just one question out of that, what is a purple hat? How is it different from a red hat? Or for, oh, from, a, a, from a gray hat, I guess. I, I know what a gray hat is, I know what a white hat is, but what's a purple hat? That's a great question, Jack. Um, the purple hat, so this past weekend, I had the pleasure and the opportunity to spend time with one of my I mentors. I think I got a purple hat around here. Hey, well, I'm you're on the right team. Uh, what, what a purple hat consists of is individuals who proactively take it upon themselves to surf the dark webs as developers, not hackers. Wow. They are individuals who actively help the community form better strategies for not penetrating systems, but for making systems better and, and making virtual servers more secure. Um, purple hat individuals are interesting because they could, they could flip perspective at the drop of a dime, but more often than not, they're very good individuals. Wow. All right. Yeah. They're, and they're willing to go to some dark places to, to bring that intelligence out there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But, you know, it's funny. We're talking about, uh, you know, 
the dark web. Um, and I read something, I guess it was yesterday, maybe the day before, um, saying that the, I'll call it the, the traditional dark web, you know, Tor type browser sites, um, that it, that's being supplanted by uh, things like Telegram. And that uh, folks are moving towards, uh, you know, Telegram, Discord, and some, and WhatsApp, uh, over uh, because of the the way that they can, uh, you know, share information. It's the anonymity and the encryption and all that. So I just think that's interesting that you wouldn't that uh, that we've gone. It, it's it's going to a uh, it's going to another level. And I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Over time, I mean, you know, because the whole uh, the quote dark web in the past was you had to. I mean, it was really it was you had to get you had to have a specific thing. You got invited, yada yada. And now, and the and the it wasn't a I'll call it a mainstream technology that it was riding on. Yeah. And now here we're having the dark web migrating to a, a quote mainstream technology. Uh, so I just thought that I thought that was interesting that that you know that you know things are being are, are being adapted and and what they were saying it was it was moving towards um, moving towards that mainstream tech for the same reasons why you move towards those technologies for legitimate purposes ease of access ease of sharing all those types of you know improved security et cetera et cetera um, so it's just it's just funny to see how it's uh, at the end of the day well, you want to call it business operations are, are business operations, you know, wherever you go to, you know, you got, you got to, you got to interface with your clients. Your clients got to be able to find you, you know, it's, <laughs> and to, uh, to, to, to your point, Ernie, um, it, it becomes a never ending rabbit hole. Um, and it, it's funny you mentioned telegram and discord, um, ultimately reverse engineering telegram. I was able to go back to the root where the communication was originating from. And when I see that I have packets and data being sent to Russia, I started to get concerned. And then when I dive in a little deeper on that rabbit hole, I start finding out who the creators of this are. And yeah. these individuals are, are, are hosting millions of communities that are all transmitting tons of data, whether good or bad, we don't know. And then conversely, when we address Discord, they were offered billions of dollars to sell off their rights to Microsoft. And why wouldn't they? because the Chinese government has interests and the oh, Chinese wow. government is associated with that platform. I find that a little interesting. That gives you the Spock eyebrow. I got to work on my Mr. Spock eyebrow um, or my, you know, what is it? Dr. McCoy eyebrow. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, welcome aboard, Snoop. I like it. Yes. I like the hire. Well, ladies and gentlemen, once again, that brings us to an end to this program, and I thank you very much for joining us. First and foremost, I have to thank my co-hosts, Mr. Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. Always a pleasure, and a special thank you to Win Schwartow, our guest, um, you know, who has showed us that uh, the baseline is the most important line in, uh, in just about everything. So remember, please rate, review, and subscribe to No Password Required Podcasts. Keep those cards and letters coming. Send your questions and comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. I'm Ernie Ferrarusso, and thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required Podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Cognizant. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. 